we're going through a series, a short series, which I'm calling The Logic of Christianity. And I am, I realize I'm aiming at your mind in this series. Um, what I'm trying to do is clarify the foundations for why we believe what we believe. And I think that is so important and necessary. In my, I, and by experience, I can testify that clarifying why I believe what I believe has taken me from a sloppy Christian to a committed and more devoted man. Because I've realized that my faith is not just some abstract religious idea that's sort of one step removed from reality. I believe it's true. I believe it is reality. And when you can get your, your mind and your heart around that and bathe yourself in these truths more and more, it, it awakens your spirit, at least it has to mine. So I just want to share with you um, this week and next week, just like I did last week, some of the epistemological foundations for why we believe what we believe. Last week we asked, is there, how do we know there is a God? Answer is nature and conscience testify to this. You can see that there is a God through nature. And um, Psalm 19 says, heavens declare the glory of God. And Romans 1 tells us that God's nature and invisible attributes are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So that the perception of God is, is clear and self-evident in the things that have been made. And we back that up with logical, scientific, and philosophical arguments last week. Again, I know that this is aiming at your head for the most part, but I'm aiming at your head. And I want you to be built up love the, so that you can love the Lord your God with all your mind and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Today, I want to ask the question, how do we know we possess the truth about God? So we know there is a God. And don't forget, Evangelism Day, Montgomery Day, we're not just talking about God in general. You've heard me say this before. That's easy to talk about God. It's so easy to talk about the divine or the other or God or a creator. Once you've established that fact, however, it's has God revealed himself. That's, that's what we're about here. That's why we're here today. But the question, I want to back up, the question I'm asking today, I want to help you think through, is how do we know we possess the truth about God? Most all religions grew out of a book purporting to be a revelation from God. Um, Islam grew out of the Quran, written by Muhammad, who claimed to receive revelations from God in the 6th and 7th centuries. Mormonism grew out of the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith, who claimed to have that God had given him the ability to interpret ancient and unknown languages. Scientology grew out of a book called Dianetics, 
written by L. Ron Hubbard in the early 1950s, which was about how to read illness uh, through mental techniques. All of these religions grew out of their own holy book, purporting to be the revelation from God. So my question is then, why then do we believe that we possess the truth about God? And I want you to understand this crystal clearly. Christianity did not grow out of a text. It grew out of an event in history. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the first century who was killed by the Romans. And three days later rose again from the dead. If that statement is true, then Christianity follows, period. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the authority from God, the way, the truth, and the life, and to be equal with the Father. And his radical claims eventually got him killed by the Romans, but if Jesus of Nazareth really rose from the dead, then it is the better part of wisdom to listen to him and believe his claims. I want to talk in three categories today. Number one, the, central, the centrality of Christ's resurrection, the historical evidence, or some historical evidence for Christ's resurrection. Number three, the resurrection as the anchor of the Christian hope. First, the centrality of the resurrection. It is very peculiar that Christianity flourished in the first century after its leader was crucified. <laughs> it is a very peculiar fact that many, many people, Jews and even Gentiles alike, were coming to follow this man as their king and lord after the Romans had crucified him. According to the Jewish law, Jesus' execution proved that he was a criminal under the curse of God. Cursed be anyone who hangs on a tree. And that the Pharisees were right all along. Well, he was crucified on a tree. Of course he's not the Messiah. Of course he's not the authority from God. And he is just, therefore, another messianic pretender who we've seen many times before. Obviously, he's not the Messiah because the Romans killed him. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, asks the historical question. He says, after Jesus was crucified, why would anyone call him the Messiah? It is not because... Um, Jesus performed miracles. It is certainly not because he died, but because of the conviction that Jesus Christ rose again and left an empty tomb behind him. This was the center of New Testament preaching for the apostles. Here's what Acts 2, 29 and 32 say. This is Peter preaching. He says, Brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. This Jesus, though, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Witnesses to his resurrection. Eyewitnesses to Jesus being dead at point A and alive again at point B. That is how Christianity began. In Acts 4.33, we read that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to, to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the down payment, the seal of God on Christ's life in ministry. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was the testimony of God that vindicated Christ's radical claims to be the authority, the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the one of whom children of God should make disciples. If Jesus rose from the dead, we're not, we're not reduced to comparative religions or what this one says and that one says. We need to just ask one question. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If he didn't, we are of all people most to be pitied. If he did, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, then we should listen to him. Now, I want to give you five lines of historical evidence that have helped me um, that support the preaching of the apostles that Jesus rose from the dead. What I'm going to do is give you established historical facts that are accepted by the majority of critical scholars, whether they are atheist, Jews, agnostic, or Christians or anything in between. I'm giving you established historical facts among critical scholars. Now, if you were going to write a biography of George Washington, what, doc, what sources would you go to to find out what he, who he was and what he was like? Why, you would go to his diary, written sources directly from him, you would go to sources written by people who knew him. Those are good places to start. And so that's why I'm going to go to the New Testament. And that's why all scholars go to the New Testament. Now, step back for a minute and understand what historians do when they look at the New Testament. 
First of all, what is the New Testament? The New Testament is a collection of written documents coming down from the first century by followers of Jesus of Nazareth. There are four biographies, and there are letters from his closest followers. Later in history, the church collected these together and canonized them. But when a historian looks at the Bible, he looks at these as separate letters and biographies of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And um, coming down from the first century, and looks to see what historical facts can be established by the data. Now, if, if I realize this approach that I'm taking today is not shared by everyone. And so if you, if you think that I'm out of line by giving historical evidence here, uh, then just write me off for, for this sermon. Um, but I have found this very helpful in my life, very helpful to know not just because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but to have a second source of warrant for why I believe what I believe, the historical evidence, has bolstered my faith greatly. So five historical facts that the majority of scholars who have researched and published in this area agree with, whether atheist, agnostic, agnostic Jewish, Christian, or anything else. Number one, That's the first one. First, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who, rose, who lived in Israel in the early first century. Where do we get these sources? We get this from the source called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also get this from the writing of the Apostle Paul. We get this from the writings of Peter. And we get this from various other sources that are non-canonical, non-biblical literature coming down from the first and se second century. Here's an interesting one from Josephus. Anyone know who Josephus is? Rome, uh, a Jewish historian writing in the late first century. In his book, Antiquities of the Jews, he says that Jesus was known to be a worker of amazing deeds. Celsus Accused, who was a um, who was a um, non-Christian writer, atheist, basically writing in the first century, he accused Jesus of being a sorcerer and a magician. The Talmud, which is a Jewish rabbinic document in the first century, says that Jesus of Nazareth practiced sorcery. So, you see what. You see, all of these documents are attesting to a, the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, who was known to do very strange and odd things in the first century. So Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person who walked the earth. That is an established historical fact among historians. Um, and it's well attested in ancient sources, and I've just given you a snippet. Um, that is why I, I chuckle when, when someone watched something on the History Channel and they say, do you know that there's actual evidence that Jesus lived in the first century? I want to tell them, it's not even questioned that Jesus lived. And 
This is not even discussed anymore. This is an established historical fact. Um, one New Testament writer who is an atheist, atheist agnostic, he calls himself, named Bart Ehrman, puts it like this. He wrote a book on the existence of Jesus. He is not a Christian, but he says this. He says, the existence of Jesus is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. It is not an issue. There is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, or early Christianity, or any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested to in the early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism, because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Okay, that is coming from an atheist historian. It is not even a questioned point of datum that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. All right? So that's not taken historically, uh, that's not taken seriously. That is a historically established fact. Um, what do I have there? That's my, that's, you can read that. Um, that's a quote I just read. All right. Secondly, the second historical fact is that Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion. This is attested to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and is also attested to in non-biblical literature coming out of the first and second centuries. Um, there's a fact I'm going to prove. Yes, okay. Look at this quote from Josephus. Uh, again, he was the Jewish historian. He, said, he writes, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his disciples. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. That's coming from a non-biblical source, historian, writing in the first century. Another is Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, writing in 115 AD. He says, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by the populace. Christus from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tell us about. So, that Jesus died is attested to by multiple independent early sources, both um, by believing and unbelieving in the first century. That's why John Dominic Crossan 
a non-biblical historian said, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Third, is that the Sunday following Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. All of the Gospels testify to this fact. There are, there are women followers who find the empty tomb of Jesus. Now there are three reasons why, you sh why people believe, why historians believe this is a historical fact. First, that it is women who discover the empty tomb shows that this is a credible account. Because in the first century, women had a very low status in Roman in ancient culture. Do you know that a woman's testimony was, testimony was not even permitted in a court of law during the first century um, for the Jews? Origen, um, writing against a person named Celsus, mocked the narrative for including women. So you see it includes women. How can you believe their testimony? So you have to understand, in the first century, a woman's testimony was not even admitted in a court of law. It was seen as unworthy and untrustworthy. So Mike Lacona, who is a great New Testament scholar, asks the question, why fabricate a report of Jesus' resurrection that already would have been difficult for many to believe and then compound that difficulty by adding women as the first witnesses? This shows that the New Testament writers were not trying to fabricate anything but faithfully report what was for them maybe an awkward or embarrassing reality that women were the first to discover the empty tomb. So that lends cred credibility to the account. Number two, and I love this one, the widespread allegation that the disciples stole the body of Jesus shows that the tomb was empty. Read this with me, would you? Um, I'm going to have to turn around to see it. But in Matthew it says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole away, stole him away while they were asleep. And if, if this comes to the governor's ears, he will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, now think through this with me. Matthew feels the need to refute the claim that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. That only makes sense if the tomb was in fact empty, for he would not have to defend the disciples for not stealing the body if there was an occupied tomb. 
One scholar says, the fact that the enemies of Christianity felt obliged to explain away the empty tomb by the theft hypothesis, hypothesis shows not only that the location of the tomb was known, but that it was empty. Third, let me grab this. Thirdly, the disciples' resurrection ministry, please understand, would not flourish in Jerusalem if Jesus' body lay in the tomb. <laughs> right? The disciples' ministry was a problem in the first century. Many Jews were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and Gentiles as well. If the tomb were occupied, then all the Jewish leaders needed to do was exhume the body and drag it through the streets. The fact that they did not do that shows that there was no body in the tomb to be exhumed. So that is another historical fact. Number four. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people had experiences in which they claimed to have seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion. I'm going to go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. In this passage, Paul is quoting an oral formula. This is the way, this was an oral culture, and they memorized things. And so, the way an oral formula, tradition, began is, you would say, I delivered what I received to you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, you see the Apostle Paul giving this oral formula about the gospel. And he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here is the formula that was spread abroad in the first century. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now, in this passage, there's multiple cases of Jesus appearing alive that Paul asserts. First, he appeared to Peter. You see this in Luke 24, 34, which says, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Uh, next, the appearance to the twelve. We see that in Luke, John, and in the longer ending of Mark. The appearance to five, the five hundred. I think this is amazing. That Paul says that the appearance of five hundred, most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep, but most of them are there and willing to be questioned on whether Jesus of Nazareth, they saw the risen Lord. I find that amazing that Paul is writing 20 to 25 years after the resurrection and is telling the Corinthians, most of these 500 are still alive and you can question them. 
That shows confidence in what he's saying. Next, he appeared to James. This is the Lord's brother. Now, Dr. Craig is famous for asking the question, what would it take to convince you that your brother was the Lord? <laughs> we read in the Gospels that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. But, when we come to the Bible, we have a book written by the brother of Jesus, James, convinced that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. What would it take to convince you of that fact? Perhaps a resurrection would do it. Perhaps a resurrection. By the way, the conversion of James is, in his, is accepted among critical scholars all over because they see the document James and they see he was a leader in the Jerusalem church that's in the book of Acts so that's two separate documents attesting to this man who believes his brother is the Lord and I find that astounding then there's the appearance to all the apostles that's interesting um, in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, it says that the apostles were there but some doubted so there was a group of apostles who saw the risen Lord, and some were doubting. And I think that's the group called all the apostles, as opposed to just the twelve. So that is an extremely early creed, uh, written 20 to 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and it summarizes the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And shows that this was not some mass hallucination or one-off event. This was different occasions, various circumstances, multiple people, and groups of people. Number five. The disciples not only claimed to have seen the risen Jesus, but they were willing to die for that belief. Peter was imprisoned, and we believe... Tradition has it, he was hung upside down for preaching the gospel of Jesus. James was beheaded. Philip was stoned. Paul was stoned a number of times and beheaded. Why would they do this? Why would they do such a thing? I believe it's because they truly believed that Jesus was the risen Lord. It also shows you that the disciples most certainly did not steal the body. No one believes this among scholars. Because you have the disciples dying for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Mike Lacona, New Testament scholar, says, Many will die for what they believe to be true, but no one would die for, what, for something they knew to be false. If the disciples stole the body, they would not die for that belief. That they did, however, shows that they truly believed that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Now, I want to give you so much more. I want to, I want to like fire hose information you right now, but I can't and I won't. But there is so much more. Um... Everything I've said, 
you can read about in big books that are dense but so uplifting if you can get through them. One is Mike Lacona's um, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. It's an 800-pager, but you can do it. Another is by N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Another is by William Lane Craig. Get this title. Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus. Another simpler one is by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona called The Case for the Resurrection. I would suggest those books. Or, if you're a listener, pull up a debate on YouTube. Mike Lacona debate or William Lane Craig debate on the resurrection of Jesus. And it will build you up to see how good the evidence is for Christ's resurrection. Um, now, I want to say more, but I'm going to stop with the evidence for a minute and just back up. Many will find a way to explain away what I just said by different hypotheses and, and things. And so the, Lord, the information is like a rope. A Lord gives you rope, and you can climb up to God with that rope, or you can hang yourself with it. Many people will do the latter. Why is that? Because they do not have ears to hear. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, God says a very interesting thing. Or Abraham says a very interesting thing. The rich man says, Please tell my family that this awful fate awaits them. And Abraham, speaking from his Abraham's bosom, says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, and he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So do you have ears to hear the voice of God? That's the question. If you do not hear Moses and the prophets and God's voice in the Old Testament scriptures, neither will you believe if someone rises from the dead. The ultimate proof for the resurrection is the testimony of the Holy Spirit who lives within your heart, who will not let you go, who grabs onto you. So here's what I want you to do. I would like you to do as a preacher and someone who has been down roads of doubt before, who's been down many questions before I want you to make the resurrection of Christ your safe haven in the midst of questions and doubts do you have questions about the Bible questions about other religions questions about whatever it may be come back to the central historical fact Jesus claimed to be the authority of God. He made promises to you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you and I am coming again. And he rose from the dead. 
If that statement follows, then your hope is secure regardless of any one of your questions. All right? Now, if you do have questions about this or anything else, I'm here for you. I've been down those roads. I know, I, I know about it. And so, not to say that I have all the answers, but I'm, I'm here to help you. But make the resurrection of Christ the anchor for your hope. Um, it is the resurrection that vindicated Christ's radical claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. To be the resurrection and the life. And of this he is given assurance by raising him from the dead. So how do we know that we possess the truth about God? It is the resurrection that is the stamp of God's promise on Christ's ministries. Our faith rests in the fact that, G that the Lord has acted in history and raised his son Jesus Christ as a testimony of these things. I'll end with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 and following, where the apostle writes, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this Christ we have hope, if in this life we have hope in Christ only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. You want to know why there's a resurrection from the dead? It's because Christ has made a way through his physical resurrection and made promises to you through faith in him that he will take you where he is. Let that be your hope in life and death. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for his resurrection. And we thank you that it is the anchor, the point of assurance. So we are clinging to Christ's resurrection. And we are placing all our hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we wait for his soon return, Lord. And I ask, Lord, whatever questions or doubts may be in your people today, you would bring them to the central fact that their Lord is risen, and he is risen indeed. We commit the rest of this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and power and majesty and dominion now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen.
If anyone would like special prayer, I'd love to pray with you. God bless you.